Notice anything different? That's right. No ad. Which means this space is available. So if you have a company or brand or product or anything really that you'd love to promote on 30 Pop, this is your chance. Just shoot me an email at the link in the show notes and I'll give you all the relevant details. Now, on to 30 Pop. Hello. Question. Yeah? In 1991, did you or did you not have a crush on Mike Seaver's girlfriend, Kate? Mike Seaver's girlfriend? Wasn't that his wife in real life? Well, as of 30 years ago this week, yes. Was that your trivia question? Kurt Cameron and Chelsea Noble got married 30 years ago I mean, on July 20th. The, here's the deal about Chelsea Noble. I mean, I thought she was cute, but I had too many other crushes to add an extra to the list. I had Mallory. You considered Chelsea Noble an extra over I mean, I Justine have, it, Bateman? Come on. Well, I mean, Justine Bateman was a little earlier, probably. I'm trying to think of who I would have been. I had a lot of crushes back then. I was in love with her, and I was honestly, genuinely sad when I learned that she married Kirk Cameron. But, you know, do you have yeah. any anniversary wishes for the couple? Yeah, I have a wish. Shut the f*** up. <laughs> That's perfect. I'll let them know, and uh, I'll and I'll let you know if they have any kind words back. Okay. Okay. Oh Lord. Oh man. All right. Well, hey, well, I'm going to start the episode, but I'll uh, I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Love you. Bye. Let's see. Ya. From Milieu Media Group, this is Thirty Pop, a weekly peek back at the music, movies, sports, fashion politics and news from 30 years ago. I'm your host, Luke Braun. This is Season 3, Episode 27, Purple Prose and the Birth of Alternative Rock. Today we're looking back at the week that ended Saturday, July 20th, 1991. Welcome, friends, to 30 Pop. As I try to remind you each and every week on this show, I'm so, so glad you're here. Reminiscing alone is fun, I guess, but reminiscing with friends? I'm not sure there's much that can beat that. One contender, though, perhaps, is going on vacation, which I'm gearing up to do now as I record this episode. That means that we have no time for dawdling. Let's get into this week in 1991 pop culture highlights. First things first, let's do a quick recap of all the things that looked exactly the same as last week in 1991. For starters, we had the same number one film at the box office for the third straight week, Terminator 2 Judgment Day, which brought in $22,142,090, almost all of which was profit at this point. The movie cost approximately $102 million to produce, and in its first two weekends in theaters, it recouped just under $101 million. As I mentioned a few weeks back, the movie has to date generated over half a billion dollars in box office revenue which is impressive until you compare it to its creator and director James Cameron's other box office successes. On the list of the top grossing films of all time, Cameron holds two of the top three spots. Titanic at number three with $2.2 billion, and Avatar at number one with $2.8 billion. In fact, Terminator 2 doesn't even crack the top 200 on that list. It comes in at number 211, just behind Kung Fu Panda 3, which I didn't even know existed until this very moment. None of that is to take away from the massive financial success T2 was, though. 
It actually just says more about inflation and what movies bring in these days than anything else. For example, four of the top 12 movies on that list are the Avengers movies, and Black Panther is another one. The only movies that rank higher than Terminator 2 and were released earlier than 1991 are Star Wars Episodes 4 and 5 and E.T. The Extraterrestrial, which released at a time when the price of a movie ticket was probably 20 or 30 percent of what it is these days. Scaled for inflation, Terminator 2 would have to be in the top 15 or 20 box office successes of all time. Anyway, other things that hadn't changed this week in 1991. Van Halen still had the top album in the country with F-U-C-K for Unlawful Carnal Knowledge. Damien Dame was still number one on the hot R&B and hip-hop chart with their song, Exclusivity. Third Bass was still at the top of the hot rap chart with Pop Goes the Weasel, and Alan Jackson's Don't Rock the Jukebox was enjoying its final week as the number one song on the hot country chart. The new number one song on the Hot 100, though, belonged to British alternative rock band EMF. The song, Unbelievable. As I remember it, this song was beyond huge. I'm actually amazed that it only held the number one spot for one week because in my memory it was just so big. I couldn't tell you another song these guys ever released, but they did apparently have continued moderate success throughout the 90s, even if not so much in the U.S. One fun fact, though. The lead singer, James Atkin, although still a touring musician, solo artist, and active member of EMF each time they revive the band, has also spent the last 11 years as the music teacher at a small Catholic school in West Yorkshire, UK. So hard to believe. In other music news this week in 1991, Perry Farrell, the visionary frontman of the extremely influential rock bands Jane's Addiction and Porno for Pyros, launched a tour that would change the world as we know it. Conceived of as a farewell tour for Jane's Addiction, which was dissolving over philosophical disagreements about the sustainability of Farrell's relationship to heroin, the tour became a traveling music festival that dominated the 90s and shaped the whole ethos of the decade's rock music. The festival, named for a line from an episode of Three Stooges, was called Lollapalooza, and it shifted the entire culture of rock music. It was, in fact, where the term alternative as a subgenre of rock music was coined. Farrell consistently referred to Lollapalooza attendees as an alternative nation. That first tour featured Jane's Addiction, obviously, Susie and the Banshees, Living Color, Nine Inch Nails, Ice-T and his heavy metal band Body Count, Butthole Surfers, Rollins Band, Violent Femmes, and Fishbone. Lollapalooza became a template for the modern-day music festival, which exists today as a subculture all its own. And it isn't the only time Farrell helped that subculture along. In 2001, after a disastrous inaugural event in 1999 and no event at all in 2000, the newly formed Coachella Valley Music and Arts Festival was attempting to organize for a second shot at success. A few months prior to the scheduled event, though, there was still no headliner in place. So, Farrell, who was friends with the festival's organizers, offered to reunite Jane's Addiction for the event, which drew massive crowds and enabled the festival to actually turn a profit. It also established the long-honored Coachella tradition of bands reuniting to play the event. Suffice to say, music fans the world over owe a tremendous debt of gratitude to Perry Farrell. But for his incredible vision and, well, heroin abuse, the entire musical landscape would look very, very different today. 
And the vast majority of us would have never learned the word Lollapalooza, which Webster's Dictionary defines as one that is extraordinarily impressive or an outstanding example, an apt title for both the festival and its founder. In television this week in 1991, we saw the series finale of a show that somehow survived six full seasons despite having three different names and two different leads. The Hogan family, formerly known as Valerie's family and originally known as simply Valerie. That is, until the show's lead, Valerie Harper, was fired and killed off in a car crash. Or more precisely, she was fired and her character, Valerie Hogan, was killed off in a car crash. And replaced by actress Sandy Duncan, playing her supposed sister-in-law, Sandy Hogan. This show served as a career launchpad of sorts for the actor I would most like to interview in the world, Jason Bateman. Bateman had already been a recurring character on Little House on the Prairie and Silver Spoons and had starred in a single season of his own sitcom, It's Your Move. But he was in all 110 episodes of this series, and by the time the finale rolled around, he'd starred in Teen Wolf 2 and a few TV movies. Most of the 90s, though, were filled with hard partying and drug and alcohol abuse, with small roles scattered throughout to fund the party. His biggest career break wouldn't come until 2003, when he took on the role of Michael Bluth in the greatest sitcom ever written, Arrested Development. That has nothing to do with this episode, really, but I try to steer conversations towards that show when it's at all possible. Jason, if you're listening, please know I think you're the best. I mean, you're not Keanu Reeves, but you're a close second. Speaking of Keanu, as we so often do on this show, 30 years ago this week, on July 19th, 1991, he had yet another movie hit theaters, just one week after the release of Point Break, which we talked about last week on the show. The sequel to the movie we covered on our very first episode of 30 Pop two and a half years ago. Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. I have a feeling we're about to embark upon a most unprecedented expedition. Once they made history. I must see to it that you die. Now they are history. Bill and Ted are dead. Welcome to hell. It's the Grim Reaper, dude. How's it hanging, Death? But they're having one hell of a time. This is not what I expected this place to look like at all. We got totally lied to by our album covers, man. Taking in the sights. Not bad, dude! We totally knew a guy got one of those in his bucket of chicken. Making new friends. Excuse us, dude, but is there any way we can get back? You may challenge me to a contest. J7. You have sunk my battleship. Best two out of three. What? Enjoying the family. <laughs> no way! Invading the present. I totally possess my dad. Battling <laughs> the future. You metal, dude! Excuse us, but your shoes are untied. And meeting their maker. Guy, congratulations on Earth. Not to mention your other great planets. Mars, Jupiter, Uranus. It's the comeback of all time. Bill and Ted's bogus journey. 
It's a trip. Best of seven? Damn right! Left hand red. Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. It should come as no surprise to anyone that I love this movie, and I always have. However, it did come as a surprise to me when I watched it recently just how much I love it. I'd always remembered it being far inferior to the original. And while it is certainly inferior, it's not that far behind. Especially with the addition of Bill and Ted Face the Music last year, one of the only good things to come out of the year 2020, this is a really solid entry into the Bill and Ted narrative. What I mean is, the way the third movie tied the first and second movies together made me love this movie more than I used to. And Keanu perfection. No matter how many franchise lead roles are added to his resume, and no matter how amazing a job he does in those roles, there could never be a more perfect character for him than Ted Theodore Logan. I'm literally resisting the urge right now as I record this to stop and watch the trilogy all the way through again. But vacation awaits, so I'll press forward. Also new in theaters this week in 1991 was the John Hughes-written Ed O'Neill comedy flop, Dutch. I'm so lonesome, Let me go down and get him. I'm a communicator. I'm a breakthrough kind of guy. Your mom's on the phone. I don't have a mom. You may have a mom. I have a mother. They've only just met. I'm a friend of your mother's. I came to get you to bring you home. And already, they get along. Like family. I'm not going anywhere with you. What do you like to do for fun? Oh, you like the wiggling grunt? Me too. So you and Don are getting along well. Ah, he's not a bad kid. We're getting along just great. Come on, give it to me, pipsqueak. Ah, we're taking our time. We're seeing the country. And as Doyle himself said, nothing beats traveling the highways and byways. Okay, sugar, what'll it be? What won't make me vomit? <laughs> give me the cheese. <laughs> This isn't working out. We're not masters of the highway. We were robbed by homebound hookers. Only because you fell asleep and I got excited. You did? I know where Dutch and Doyle are staying tonight. Knowing Doyle, it'll be first class. 20th Century Fox presents the story of a boy. I got a deck of racy playing cards. Who lost the child in himself. And the man... Helped him find it. Is that your most pathetic look? That's not gonna get us a ride. This is pathetic. (laughs) Try it. See, I'm not such a bad guy, huh? Dutch. You're like a great big demented child. (laughs) I don't know much about this one. I remember it releasing, but I don't remember being remotely interested in seeing it. Not with all the other amazing movies and theaters at this point in 1991. And I assume that was a pretty common sentiment, as the movie did very poorly, especially for something written by John Hughes. With a budget of around $17 million, the worldwide gross for this movie was only about $4.6 million. John Candy was the original choice to play the lead role, and while I like Ed O'Neill just fine, I feel like Candy would have made this movie a success. It was essentially Uncle Buck meets Planes, Trains, and Automobiles anyway, so why not cast Candy? Other actors in consideration were Tim Allen, Tom Hanks, 
Robin Williams, John Goodman, Bill Murray, and Jim Belushi. And in fact, Mel Gibson was offered the role but turned it down. I can honestly see any of those guys playing the part to perfection. But, alas. The last major headline from this week in 1991, one which I should have mentioned earlier in the episode so as to avoid ending on such a terrible note. As I mentioned a few weeks back, on July 20th, 1991, boxing phenom Mike Tyson was accused of sexually assaulting Miss Black America contestant Desiree Washington, a crime he denies to this day, but for which he was found guilty and served just under three years of a six-year prison sentence. More on that next week. And speaking of next week, I don't remember if I mentioned it or not, but I will be on vacation. But don't worry, you will be in more than capable hands. My dear friend, cousin-in-law, and regular 30 Pop guest, Caleb Sanderson, is going to hop on the mic and keep this nostalgia train on the tracks. It is guaranteed to be a good time. You won't want to miss it. I'll be back in two weeks, all tan and refreshed and excited to dive back into 30-year-old pop culture news. I hope you'll join me. But until then, remember... Nothing burps better than bacon. 30 Pop is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Luke Braun. Our artwork is by the amazing Heather Hale. To check out more shows from Mill U Media Group, visit millumedia.com, which is linked in the show notes for this episode. And if you have a story from 30 years ago that you want to share, leave a message on the answering machine at 30pop.com. <laughs>